Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, we have all seen the spikes of anxiety and stress in our young people these days. There is an unbelievable amount of pressure to succeed, to look perfect, to be liked, and to do it all. There are pressures at home, in school, within relationships, and it feels heavy and constant. Now, though anxiety has risen among young people overall, studies confirm that it has skyrocketed in girls What in the world is going on here and what can we do about it? For the answers to these questions, we are turning to best-selling author, Dr. Lisa Damore. Lisa Damore writes the monthly adolescence column for the New York Times, serves as a regular contributor to CBS News, maintains a private psychotherapy practice, consults and speaks internationally, and is a senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Damore is the author of numerous academic papers, chapters, and books related to parenting and child development, including her 2016 New York Times bestseller, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, and now Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls, which comes out today, lucky us. So welcome, Dr. Lisa Damore, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a big day. This is an exciting (laughs) day. Yes, I'm so thrilled you could be on and I'm just thrilled about your book. But before we get into the meat of the matter, for those who haven't yet gotten their hands on your newly released book or seen you speak or seen you on the news, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so personally interested and invested in looking into girls and stress? Well, the easy answer on what gets me up in the morning is coffee. Mm. I, I literally, I literally lie in bed thinking about it, and then I get up. <laughs> and so, so I, I, you know, I um, I, I owe my any success I have to coffee, and then also the wonderful support of the people in my lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but girls and anxiety, um, and why this is where my work has come to. Um, my practice for a long, long time. I'm a clinical psychologist. I have cared for adolescent girls um, as a specialty for, I'm going into my third decade. Mm. So this has been a long, wonderful um, road of getting to learn about girls. And then, and I'm sure you noticed this too, it feels like about maybe six or seven years ago, the word anxiety just came to the fore. And it felt like there was not a conversation I had with a girl or a parent or a teacher where that word did not come up. Mm. And it hadn't always been that way. And so, um, you know, we do what we do. We fall back on our training and try to figure out what is this about and where is this coming from? And then, of course, most important, what can we do to help? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I, 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 I've seen what you're talking about. And, and actually, I'm not even going to say I've seen it. I've like, I feel it. I yeah. feel it in the air. At the start of your book, you discuss a recent study that found some pretty staggering results that really, you know, put some numbers to this feeling. Um, it showed that 31% of girls and young women experienced symptoms of anxiety compared to only 13% of boys and men. And another study revealed that girls' stress levels jumped 55% from 2009 to 2014 while remaining unchanged for adolescent boys. So what's going on here? Why are we seeing such a spike in stress and anxiety in girls especially? So one explanation that we have that should always be the first thing we articulate is that when girls are in distress, they as a group tend to collapse in on themselves. Mm. Whereas when boys are in distress, they as a group tend to act out. Mm -hmm. So we don't know, or we would need to look for parallel studies to see if in the same time periods, you know, did boys get themselves into more trouble? I can tell you I've looked, the rates for boys getting themselves into trouble have not increased nearly as, you know, precipitously as the rates for girls becoming anxious. Mm. But when we see this gender split on anxiety, um, that's not new. We have always known that there is this distinction around how the genders manifest stress. But these are very high rates and things have surged. And my aim in writing under pressure was to try to tease apart the multiple forces that could help us understand this. Um, Because I think we want an easy answer. We want a simple answer. But um, humans are too complicated. Teenagers are especially complicated humans. And so my aim in thinking it through at book length was to try to go layer by layer Mm. by layer through the lives of girls to get to the bottom of these very quickly rising numbers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I appreciated that about your book and felt like you were taking us, you know, for the ride so that we could see and unpack this very complicated issue. We've talked in the past to several best-selling authors like yourself about different types of stressors that can impact our young people in general. Uh, Jessica Leahy, for example, talks about the pressure of grades and the stress of looming failure. Uh, Recently, we talked to Julie Lithcott-Hames about getting into the right college, the specific college, um, as we're raising our kids. What is your take on what the top stressors are for girls these days? Well, there was something you said right at the beginning of the podcast about this sense of needing to be all that Mm -hmm. all the time to Mm -hmm. everyone. I think that there's a lot in there that I think girls feel on stage almost everywhere they go. Mm -hmm. You know, they are extraordinary students. Um, They are performing academically at levels we have never seen historically. They are also, you know, doing these incredible internships while playing sports and also, you know, working at the soup kitchen in their community. And so they're wildly busy and achieving things they've never achieved before. And as those things have come onto their plate, other things have not come off of their plate. We still expect girls to be friendly. We still expect them to be agreeable. We still expect them to be um, comfortable with the idea that we want them to tag along and maybe keep an eye on the younger kids in the family. And then we also still expect them to pay a lot of attention to how they look. Mm -hmm. Um, And though 
parents may not send that message. And I think a lot of those of us who are raising girls, and I'm raising two myself, you know, we think a lot about the messages we send. We may not send them in our own home, but our girls leave our home (laughs) and they Mm -hmm. also look at the media. And so however um, reserved we are in celebrating appearance, we are still up against a culture that sends a very powerful message that female appearance matters tremendously. Mm-hmm. So they've added all of these incredible things on and nothing has come off their plates. And so that is probably, it's, it's the cumulative force of all of these expectations that I think are probably accounting for this surge in stress. There's another thing that is at work here that I don't know how we could ever study this, but I suspect it may be a factor which is that the culture's view of stress and anxiety is not entirely accurate anymore. So one thing that psychologists have long understood, right, we know is that anxiety is a normal and healthy function. Mm -hmm. And we also know that stress is a normal and healthy function. Um, Anxiety serves to alert us when something's amiss, when something's wrong, when something Mm -hmm. needs to be addressed. And stress always happens when we're growing, when we are working at the edge of our capacities. There is pathological anxiety, right, which is when the alarm system is going off all the time and it's not making sense anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's pathological levels of stress. You know, there's trauma, there's chronic stress, there's things like that. But the bulk of human experience of stress and anxiety falls well within the normal range. One of the things I'm interested in, and I don't know how this happened, is that it feels like in our culture, there has been this wholesale pathologizing of stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Talk about all stress as if it were toxic and all anxiety as if it were a disorder. And that, I suspect, has made things worse. Because then a girl has a very stressful day, which any kid in school is going to have Mm -hmm. like that's just a given Mm -hmm. and now she has two problems she's stressed and she's stressed about the fact that she feels stressed (sighs) but she's been told the stress is bad Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that I think amplifies it and then same with anxiety all of us have anxiety all of us have anxiety several times a day probably the other thing that gets me out of the bed besides coffee is anxiety like Mm -hmm. I have these things I have to do and I get more and more anxious if I lay there not doing them So anxiety is a normal, healthy, in some ways, propelling and motivating function. But if we give young people the impression that anxiety is inherently pathological, then again, they have two problems. They get anxious about their upcoming test, and now they're also anxious about the fact that they're anxious. Oof. Yes, I can even feel that. And I think you're absolutely right about that. I loved in your book when you talked about, like, to one of your clients about when stress is is an enemy or a friend, like how you regard it as an enemy or as a friend. And maybe in certain situations, if you think about it and you talk to yourself about it, that that the anxiety or the stress is a friend. That warning bell is a yeah. friend saying, you're not comfortable. Get out of there. Or, you you know, you're you're feeling unprepared. Let's go study. Whatever it might be that that's like an actual good friend. I love the way you put that. Yeah. Um, or, you know, when it gets to be overdramatic, we've all seen 
or heard, you know, when we've we've sat with girls who were like, it's going to be terrible. Everything's going to be awful. They all hate me. I, and they catastrophize that that's when they're not being a very good friend. <laughs> so the anxiety is turned over. Exactly. And it's funny. I One of the um, things I get to do is I consult two days a week to a girls' school in my community. And so I have long, ongoing, multi-year conversations running with entire cohorts of teenage girls. And I get to talk with them about things like weekend activities. And I say all the time to the girls in my care, I say, look, if you show up at a party and you start to feel nervous, maybe it's way bigger than you thought it was going to be, or you thought parents were going to be there and there are no grown-ups to be seen, or there's definitely something weird going on in the basement. Don't ignore your anxiety. That anxiety is telling you to call your mom and go home. Mm, you know, mm. and I think often what they do is they start drinking to manage their anxiety. Right. Yes. And and that's of course never going to be a good choice in a moment like that. But I also think sometimes adults need to own that if we have pathologized anxiety, they are going to think I have to make this anxiety go mm -hmm. away. Medicate it somehow. Yes. yes. And alcohol is great for that. Mm -hmm. As opposed to saying, I'm anxious. This is my friend. What is it telling me? I need to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And what would you say to a girl who you're finding that they are doing more of the catastrophizing in that situation that, you know, they're, they're going to some place where, you know, it is safe, but it's maybe the first time they've been there. So right. now they're listening to it and they're like, is this person, is this, is this anxiety or stress like being a friend and telling me I need to get out of here? I need to go call my mom or is it making me feel, am I feeling this way because it's new? I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I'm not so great in new situations. So here's what I've come up with that seems to help at times like this. The way I think about it, I'll tell you what, how I think about it, and then I'll tell you what I say to kids. So the way I think about it is the world comes in three categories. There's the stuff we like. There's the stuff that's actually a crisis, right? Like an out-of-control keg party that you should not be at. Mm -hmm. And then everything else falls in the middle between those two things and it's the stuff we can handle. Mm. So we may not like it. It actually may not be particularly comfortable for us, but it's something we can handle. Mm. And and I would say probably a lot of life <laughs> falls into that category. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not the majority, right? I'm like, okay, I don't want to do this, but I can handle it. Or this is uncomfortable for me, but I can handle it. Um, and so when I am talking with a young person who is having a moment where the world only feels like it has two categories, mm -hmm. Think, things she likes and things she can handle. And I think that's how the world can sometimes feel for upset teenagers, right? If, if I don't like it, it's a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a very friendly way to insert the handle category back in and to say, look, I totally get it that you... Um, you know, new parties are going to places where you've not been before or not knowing what you're walking into. I know that is not your cup of tea. I, I think it is definitely in the bucket of stuff you can handle. And my job is to help you figure out what it's going to take for you to handle this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I even think of, you know, girls who are, you know, like uh, they get scared of the dark. Well, okay, you're in, you're in your house and you know, w w things are safe. But then, you know, their brains start to kind of go and say, oh, I, I feel like I need to go sleep on the floor of my parents' bedroom. You intuitively know that they're safe. Everything's yeah. fine. 
And then you have to go into how they can handle the situation. What's going to work for you? Do you need to listen to music? Do you need to do some some breathing? I know you talked about something called square breathing. What was that? So square breathing is one of many forms of relaxation breathing. Mm -hmm. And I'll describe how it works. But first, I have to confess that um, I am a bit of um, a cynic. Um, and I'm especially cynical about aspects of psychology that strike me as sort of wooey. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about the glitter jar in the class. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. Yes. And I will say that for a long time, breathing exercises to me felt a little wooey. Yeah. Um, and so even though I knew, you know, colleagues I liked and respected very much, you know, were recommending them and working with them, I would not myself go there. But then I stumbled upon a paper that explained the underlying biology mm -hmm. of breathing exercises, and that changed everything for me because now I have science. Yes. And I'm to go. And you're not arguing with the science then? I won't argue with the science. <laughs> Give me science, I'm on your side. Yes. So, so here's the underlying science of why controlled breathing short circuits an anxiety response. So when we are anxious, what actually gets triggered is, you know this, but this is for your audience. Um, when you're anxious, what gets triggered is a very primitive and um, ancient and highly orchestrated physiological reaction. So our heart starts to beat, our breathing starts to speed up, we sometimes feel sweaty, we're not always aware of it, but our pupils dilate. There is this full body response that is designed to prepare us to fight or flee. And it's, it's got this ancient evolutionary benefit. Mm -hmm. um, it's extremely uncomfortable for people. And it feels out of control, even though it's actually quite systematic. Mm -hmm. So the part of the brain that has detected the threat, whatever it perceives to be a threat, tells the, the, um, the lungs and the heart to speed up. And that part of the brain is in the in, close to the brainstem, at the back of the head, very primitive part of the brain. So nerves run from that part of the brain down to the lungs and tell them to actually speed up their rhythm, which they do, in order to send more oxygen into the blood that's going to the limbs that are going to run or fight. It turns out those same nerves are actually two-way streets, that they send messages from the brain down to the lungs, but there also are nerves that send messages from the lungs back up to the brain. Mm. And the reason these nerves exist from the lungs to the brain is that they are stretch receptors um, that are in the lungs that keep the brain posted on how breathing is going. Because if you are suffocating, your brain needs to know really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so these are um, high priority messages and again, laid down in the body in a very powerful sort of protective evolutionary way. So we can't easily override the speed of our heart, but we can easily override the speed of our breathing. So when we feel anxious and this system kicks off, the sooner we can, as soon as we can, it's good to actually override one's breathing and square breathing is an example that I'll explain, but slow and deepen the breathing. The stretch receptors in the lungs detect this change, and they very quickly send a message back up to the brain saying, wait, never mind, everything seems to be fine. Um, the, the, the lungs are operating normally. And that helps to hack the brain and turn off the anxiety response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So everybody has to find their own system, but a quick and easy one that I like and that I use if I feel unduly anxious is square breathing, where you exhale all of your air and then very slowly to the count of three, let air fall into your body. One, two, three, 
hold it for a count of three, and then let, let air fall out of the body, one, two, three, and wait for a count of three. Mm-hmm. And doing this even for two or three cycles tends to work. And it actually requires quite a bit more concentration than one would think um, to do that counting of one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, but much more slowly. And that concentration also keeps your mind from running away. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it sort of puts a pause on whatever the mind was doing. And because usually the mind wasn't being very helpful um, when that anxiety response came right. right. And what I always tell the people I care for about square breathing is that as simple as it is, it's a good thing to practice when you're feeling calm. Mm. Because you want it to be a well-worn groove that you can fall into when you do become anxious. Um, And the metaphor I give um, often is that of like tennis players who hit lob after lob after lob in practice Because even if they can do it, in the middle of a game, when someone sends you a lob, your anxiety goes up a little bit, you want those muscles to just kick in and know exactly what to do. Mm. This this all makes complete sense to me. And and I like that you're sort of practicing it in advance so that you're not saying (laughs) to a child okay, now you need to practice your breathing right. when they haven't done it. And, you know, they're, they're just looking at it. Now, all of a sudden, now you have to go into detail as to why it works. And you have to explain to them how to do it. And, you know, hearing something when the panic attack is already happening or the anxiety is really high and telling somebody to, to breathe in that particular moment when you haven't practiced it is not always received that well. No, and it won't work as well as we need it to work. So we know that one of the things that causes anxiety among girls is that they're very invested in their relationships. They have what is often described as a complicated or emotional connection with their mom. They they have a conflicted uh, but deep relationship with many different types of friends. And it can be confusing when things happen when they have to deal with like a lot of different feelings that are sort of whirling around in their heads and their bodies all at the same time. So you tell us, for example, about a girl who's unsure of how to cope with her mom who admitted to having an affair. She loves her mom, but's frustrated with her. And then later on in the book, you talk about a student who wants to be the editor-in-chief of her school newspaper and loses out to her friend and is often now conflicted every time she sees her. She's sort of angry, but she's happy for her. She's conflicted. So how do we help our girls sort out all these conflicting feelings when they feel bad about feeling bad and then they yeah. wind up driving themselves crazy, both physically and emotionally? It's coming out in all parts of their bodies while this is happening. So what, what are we doing with that and how do we talk to our girls about that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. So this is, I mean, this there's a lot packed in to the two examples that you mentioned. But I think the first thing we want to say about both of them is that anxiety alerts us to threats on the outside and on the inside. So anxiety happens if we're driving and a car comes up behind us really fast, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's a good use of anxiety. But also anxiety is what happens when we're having a feeling that we don't feel good about. So um, the girl whose story about, you know, knowing that her mom had had an affair, she was angry with her mom. But then she felt bad about having that feeling, which was experienced as anxiety. Um, And the girl who didn't get the editorship that she wanted was jealous of her friend, but then felt uncomfortable about having that jealousy. And so that was experienced as anxiety. So I think it's helpful to just 
bring into the popular understanding that anxiety is an internal alert too. It's not always just about outside things. So then why do girls get so anxious about these things, right? I mean, these are rational responses. Of course, you're going to be upset with someone who's had an affair if they're your mom. And of course, you're going to be jealous of a friend if they got the job you wanted. Well, I think for girls especially, there are sort of rules of the game that they have learned as a function of being girls. And one is that girls are supposed to be nice and not be angry or jealous or any of those things. And then the other, and this is where things get really sticky, girls are sort of supposed to be transparent. And what I mean is girls somehow get the impression that if they have a feeling, they have to share it, that they can't have a private feeling. Mm. Um, and, and I'm not entirely clear where this came from, but I do sometimes wonder if our emphasis on like being authentic, you know, and not being fake, you know, I wonder if girls have heard that as, oh, totally forthcoming. Right? <laughs> exactly. You have to tell them everything. I have to be completely honest. Yeah. You know, and you will hear these things happen in the seventh grade where a girl will say, well, like, I didn't like her. So I told, I had to tell her cause I didn't want to be fake. And well, you're like, you, you don't no! have to Yes, exactly. So. <laughs> So there's a few ways to help girls get some relief from this sort of double, uh, this catch-22 of be both totally pleasing to everyone around you and also totally transparent, which mm-hmm. no human being can be, you know, both of those at the same time. And still trying to be like a human being. And yeah. yes, okay. <laughs> Not possible. Not possible. Okay, so there's two two solutions. So. And this gets away from the question of like what to do if your mom's had an affair, but these are two good, big, generic solutions. Mm-hmm. So one is um, a solution that I I share that worked really well for my younger daughter. So I have two daughters. I have a girl who's in high school and a girl who's in elementary school. And my younger daughter has really strong opinions. She's just like this, like, you know, kind of iridescent kid. Like Mm -hmm. everything is, you know, if she's happy, she's so happy. And when she was little, if she was upset, she was very upset. Um, But she's just, she's a powerful personality, like a terrific kid. And when she was in kindergarten, there was a classmate who drove her nuts. And she would come home every day complaining and complaining and complaining about this classmate. And I finally said to her, look, you're allowed to be brain annoyed with that classmate. You must be behavior polite. Mm. Uh And at six, she completely got it. Uh So I wasn't trying to legislate her heart and mind. I was saying, okay, that's okay. That's an inside feeling. That's how you feel. That's where you're at. Um, That doesn't change the fact that you still have to actually act in a civil manner. Uh But that was a tremendous relief for her. And and the way we can kind of grow that up a little bit is to talk with the girls about the fact that they have a front stage and a backstage. You know, what we choose to show the whole wide world and what we choose to keep to ourselves. Um, And this isn't being two-faced, right? And this isn't being fake. Um, This is being a member of a civil society, right? And I think adults do this constantly. I mean, we get on the elevator with somebody we really can't stand and we stand there and make small talk, right? Mm -hmm. We're having a front stage and a backstage moment. So... Those things I have found to be very helpful, either sort of brain annoyed, behavior polite, or you've got your front stage and your backstage and your backstage is yours and you get to have a private emotional and psychological life that you decide who has access to, but you do not actually owe the world full disclosure on everything. And what really matters is not so much what you think and feel, but what you do. Mm -hmm. So you can be jealous all day long of your friend. You may actually have no choice. Like that just may be a feeling that arises that poses no problem. 
you cannot act on the jealousy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which you say in the book so beautifully, I think it's important for those girls to realize that they can own their feelings. They're allowed to be jealous. She felt so terrible about being jealous. You're allowed to be jealous, but as you're saying, you, you shouldn't act on that jealousy, right? We're not going to be vengeful in this situation. Um, and it's it's okay to be a human being you're not you know you're not divorcing yourself from the feeling uh by not acting on the jealousy that you're feeling at that time yeah and that you know thinking and feeling exists on a separate plane from doing and they don't have to line up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay great so you talked about the idea of the square breathing, but I'm wondering if there's any other specific ways that parents or educators can help girls in their lives sort of manage when they're feeling overwhelmed by stress or anxiety and have admitted to you that they're they're feeling this way. Um, you mentioned the glitter jar, so I think we should talk oh, about that. Oh, let's talk about it. Because I think that's such a good example of um, what parents can do. So the, the sort of headline here is that how parents react to a girl's stress or anxiety can make things much better or much worse. Yes, you say snit happens, which is like <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like, yes, it does. And, and it's like, how do you not get involved with the meltdown? Your child is yes. like pouring out not just what's in her body, but like then gets all over you and you're just like uh, ah you're like i'm covered with this snit now and and it's and it's also you know they're not saying the nicest things to you this hard no it is it is true and and i will tell you you know it's funny you write this whole book and then you think about like what are the lines that i really oh, hope people you know walk away with and one of them is this which is if you are raising a normally developing teenager she will have meltdowns mm-hmm. and Nothing you do can prevent this. You know other people who are listening to you right now are like teenagers. My child's <laughs> doing it. Like, she's five. She's eight. She's ten. Yes. Yeah, we see it. <laughs> Kids have meltdowns. They absolutely have meltdowns. And I think we are ten steps further ahead if we just say this is a done deal and it is unpreventable and it's not a sign that she's broken or that I'm broken. It is a part of normal development. And it's not personal, but it's so hard to uh, keep that in mind when they're calling you names or telling you you're awful in some way. The worst. You're the worst. The worst. The worst. Absolute worst. <laughs> so the best advice I ever got, and again, my cynicism is going to come through in this. That's um, okay. I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> so I was visiting Ursuline Dallas. It's this fabulous girls' school in Dallas. And I was I was talking with the counselors at the school, and we were talking about girls having meltdowns at school, which they also do. Um, and we were talking about, like, how schools handle this when this happens. And one of the counselors said to me, she said, and I'm going to do a Dallas accent because I'm from Denver. So oh, I think please I do. Please do. She said, well, that's when I get out our glitter jar. (laughs) A glitter jar, yes. (laughs) And I thought, I said, really? And I'm thinking, what? What is she talking about? And she says, I'll go get you one. So she stands up to leave and walks out of the room. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what is this? And I'm thinking a lot of things. I'm thinking, first of all, I hate this already. (laughs) And And the reason I hate this already is that I hate two things. I hate pop psychology. And this sounds like pop psychology to me. Mm -hmm. 
and I hate glitter. Mm-hmm. I actually hate glitter. Yeah, you're, you're like, I'm not into all this with this, this glitter stuff. No. That's okay with me. So I'm just trying to sit there and look polite while she um, she leaves and comes back. So she comes back in the room and she has in her hand a jar that's about maybe four or five inches tall. It's a clear mason jar. The lid is glued on and inside the jar, um, it's filled with water. And then there's about two tablespoons of sparkly purple glitter in it. Mm-hmm. And so she comes back in and she sits down and she grabs a jar and she shakes it violently like a, like a snow globe. And she says, when a girl comes in my office like that, I use the glitter jar and I do this. And of course, like it becomes like, you know, like a torrent, like a, a purple sparkly, you know, snowstorm in there. Right. Um, and then she sets it down on the table in front of us. And she says, and then I point at the glitter jar and I say, honey, this is your brain right now. Okay. So now I'm starting to catch on and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. There is something to this. Right. We're not just looking at the glitter and trying to relax. That's not what it is. This is smart, right? And then she says, and so I say to the girl, first, we're going to settle your glitter. <laughs> I love her. I love, <laughs> I love her. her. Love this woman. And I was like, oh, she's a genius. This woman's a genius. This woman's a genius. Okay. So here's what the glitter jar means to me. It does two things at once. First, it models quite beautifully what actually does go on in the brain when a young person becomes completely overwhelmed, especially a teenager. So the way the brain remodels in adolescence, which it does, it actually gets, you know, souped up and becomes incredibly fast and effective in adolescence, is that it upgrades in the order in which it initially developed, which is from the more primitive sections in the back to the more sophisticated sections in the front. Now, the way it goes, the primitive sections happen to hold the emotions, the sophisticated sections happen to hold the ability to maintain perspective. Mm -hmm. So there is this juncture when teenagers have what we call gawky brains, Mm Um, which is that when they become upset, the emotion centers are so powerful that they can overwhelm the entire system and take it down. Mm-hmm. And a glitter storm captures that perfectly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you have this clear-minded child and then something bad happens and the glitter storm takes over and there's no clarity at all. But the other thing that the glitter jar captures is it will fix itself on its own. And what I've come to appreciate, even since writing, finishing writing the book, is that the glitter jar not only provides a model of what the brain does, it also provides instructions to the adult, which is just sit there calmly and let this pass mm-hmm. and use your presence to communicate that you have total confidence that that child's brain can write itself. And there's reasons why parents should have this confidence. First of all, it usually works. You know, that once a person has had a chance to calm down, it's that sort of that old adage we have, right? Which is when it comes to a hard feeling, the only way out is through, right? Once you've had the feeling, you can usually move past it. It also is tremendously helpful for young people to watch an adult, watch them with total confidence that this is gonna be okay. So, for me, I, I, I will confess, I have not been able to make a glitter jar for myself. That's hilarious. <laughs> I've like recommended them to everybody else, but I just can't get there. Um, but I use it now all the time in my own parenting 
and in my own clinical work, when somebody's really upset, I will just think there's no point in trying to get to the bottom of this right now. There's no point in mm-hmm. asking questions about why they are upset. That I hear her voice. I hear that brilliant Dallas counselor's voice saying, you know, first, we're going to settle your glitter, mm-hmm. right? And I'll say, you know, do you want to go for a walk or do you want some tea or do mm-hmm. you want to just sit here quietly? Do you want my company? Do you want some time to yourself? What do you need? And I'm just thinking the glitter will settle, the glitter will settle. And then when it does, one of two things happens. Either the problem is completely over, right? That something bad happened, the girl was upset, and now she's okay. Or she can fix it. Mm -hmm. Her mind is clear again. The rational cortex, the frontal cortex is back online, right? right? And she's, you know, she can out-reason us again at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just made me appreciate how powerful adult anxiety is when it comes to exacerbating a young person's anxiety. For sure. Absolutely. And and I, we interviewed Dr. Dara Harris very early on in this uh, podcast. And we, uh, we talked about a gate that comes down. It's kind of like a gate that comes down and nobody's getting through the gate at this point because the child yeah. is really upset. And yet... And this is just my perspective. We, we wind up banging on the gate so much. We're like, hey, let me in. Let me fix this. Let me do this. Or why are you acting this way? You're acting like an animal. And you're just, you're in and you're in and you're in. And you're, the, the, the glitter as you're yes. flying all over the place. You're making it worse. You're making yes. it so much worse. I'm not saying it's easy not to do that. Like, but you cannot bang on the gate and expect to get in. It just doesn't work that way. The gate will open when it's ready. Yes. No, and I think that all of those like, well, why didn't you study for the test? Or why did you have a fight with that friend? Or, you know, all of that. We should think of that as shaking the glitter jar, yes, right? Like that. that's all so. we're doing. And so, and I really, it's funny to me how, how much wisdom is in this one little metaphor, both mm-hmm. in terms of giving an explanation of what's happening neurologically, that it's really quite accurate, and then also giving instructions to the grown-ups. Mm-hmm. Just let it rest. Be. Yeah, let rest. It be. Mm-hmm. And and let your child see you not be frightened. Mm-hmm. So good. Okay. So good. Um, really important information. So you, you talk about how to help girls when they're disappointed. To deal with that disappointment so that they're not so stressed by it. And in the book, you're talking to a girl who is going to have to play JV instead of varsity, for example. But we can really apply this to any girl who's you know wanted to make a team or doesn't get the exact job she wanted or the part in the play. How do we talk to girls about a different way to look at things that disappoint them? I think... The hardest part probably about being a young person is how little perspective you have. And it's not because they're not brilliant and wonderful and amazing. It's because they're young. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially in the current climate around college admissions um, and this sense that like there's no margin for error, right? And everything feels so competitive, which is overblown, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's amazing colleges in the country. There's thousands of them, and you know, kids who want to go to them and have the resources will. Um, but I think we have to first sort of think, well, 
why is it so hard on young people to have things not go their way? Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that a very fair and empathic reaction is, you know, their sense is they don't actually have a lot of room to mess up, mm. you know, and that, and that um, you know, a misstep will wreck their whole trajectory. Yes, right? yes. They can worry about that. And, and adults don't always help, you know, right. <laughs> we can sometimes, you know, right. speak out of both sides of our mouths. So I think one of the things that's been really interesting to me is to be more transparent with teenagers about our own histories and our own paths. Mm. And and I, you know, I often speak at schools and I speak to the parents, but I also speak to the high schoolers and sometimes the middle school students. And of course, I get this lovely introduction of like, you know, here's Dr. Damore and she, you know, New York Times bestselling book and columnist at the New York Times and whatever. And I always make a point as part of my talk with the high schoolers to return to that and tell them about my work as a writer and tell them that actually I was a a very poor writer in high school. Mm. Um, I I went to a big public high school in Denver and it it was a great education in a lot of ways, but not a great education in others. And it wasn't a great education on writing. And I walk them through a very long and winding path Mm. from age 17 when I graduated from high school to age 48 that I am now and how I arrived at the position where I write in a broad, you know, for a broad audience now. Um, And I have to tell you, they are wrapped. They're absolutely Mm. wrapped Mm. at this unpacking of how long it took, how long I was a bad writer, what it took to become a better writer. And I'm giving them my ages as I go. And then I'm like, okay, now this part of the story, I'm 31. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, the other thing I do, because often, um, you know, I'm there's seniors in the audience, you know, high school seniors. I also say to them something else. I say, now, okay, seniors, I know you're all in the college process. Here's something I must tell you before we do anything else. After age 25, nobody cares where you went to college. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. And they don't know this. No. They really don't know this. And they have no way to know it. Because those couple of colleges are their whole world. Like that's all they've been hearing about from friends, from family, who went there, who goes there, what it means if you go there, this sort of prestige around it, right? Exactly. And it's like, if you think of them like looking into their future, it's like the college lens, as far as they're concerned, colors everything that comes after it. Mm. Whereas those of us who have grown up know, and I tell them this, I say, look, I had friends in graduate school who were very dear friends, and I did not know where they went to college. Mm -hmm. And this little bit of information is a tremendous relief to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes, because I can be provocative in my own way, I'll say, look, if you're still talking a huge amount after age 25 about where you went to college, (laughs) something went wrong. This is not a very interesting person. college right and you don't want to peak in college you know so so I think that there are really humane ways that adults can engage teenagers that go beyond just sort of empty reassurance Mm -hmm. like no no no, it's going to be okay and get really into the nuggets and details of how long it takes to arrive at being truly good at something Mm -hmm. um, to figure out what you're all about and we have to work against the college process, which by design gives 17-year-olds the impression that they should be fully formed and they should be able to justify their existence mm-hmm. on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really well explained and, and very important to make sure that our kids know that 
you know, that their perception of what is disappointing may actually not be disappointing at all. I mean, in many ways, it's not. And we know that there are many different paths, many different colleges, uh, many different ways to get where you're going. And I love that you provide an, a, a scenic route of your own path. And I think parents and educators can do that, too, because there they are, parents and educators and coaches having arrived at their destination, at least a stopping point away uh, on the way of their destination. And kids look up to them and say, yeah. oh, well, they're they are already the doctor or they are the business person or the teacher or whatever it may be. And that is something I'm interested in being. And their path was not a straight arrow. Their path yes. was, was winding and they were bad at things and they had to go back and they failed and they got up and they failed again and they thought they weren't going to get up and they messed up again and then they finally got forward. So I like that you're doing that. I know that before I we get into the top tips, I could talk to you all day. I really loved one of the ways that you explained uh, conflict with girls. And you talked about the bulldozer, the doormat, and the doormat with spikes. I think it's really important for parents and to, for educators to have like their brains wrapped around these kinds of concepts just so when they're talking to girls, it really, you know, it calls up uh, something that really makes sense to girls in their heads and what it means to be a doormat or what it means to be a bulldozer or a doormat with spikes. And then the other piece of it of how you could be a pillar. So can you explain how to talk to girls about that aspect? Sure, sure. Okay, so the big framework here is that conflict happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, we have this idea that like kids should get along and they shouldn't have trouble with each other. And oh my gosh, then when they do, you know, grownups panic. Mm -hmm. um, I think a much, much more accurate and better place to start is to say, okay, if you take a whole bunch of random kids and you make them spend all day together at every day for nine consecutive months, there's going to be a lot of conflict. There like, is. That, that, I know you're <laughs> like, oh, and if it's like girls of more than four or five, then you're really starting to get into some touchy area because now they haven't even picked everybody in this group. They're not going to like everybody in this group. They're not going to have the easiest time with everybody in this group. So important. Yes. So so first of all, grownups just have to be okay with that, right? And accept that. Then, once we accept that there's conflict, then we can get down to the really important business of helping kids be good at it. Mm. And the way we want to think about it is that there's the three unhealthy forms of conflict which you named. So being a bulldozer, which is just running people over, being a doormat who gets run over, um, and being a doormat with spikes, which is far and away the most common, I think, Ugh. for adults, adults, children, everybody of all ages, which is, you know, indirect aggression, um, you know, talking about people behind their backs, uh, using guilt as a weapon, mm -hmm. playing the part of the victim. Oh, yes, um, the martyrs. Yeah. Oh, gosh, <laughs> what happened to me? I will get it. I will do it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, and any conflict that's happening over social media is a doormat with spikes event because it involves third parties, mm -hmm. right? Like there's no way that conflict involves everybody else on social media, but now it does. Mm. Um, and so first we name those and then we can say to teenagers and children and adults, um, the healthy form of conflict is pillar where you stand up for yourself while being respectful of the other person. 
And sometimes when I'm talking with teenagers and kids about this, I'll let them play out the bulldozery mm-hmm. or doormatty with spikes things they want to do, mm-hmm. because that's usually where people start, mm-hmm. right? I mean, our first impulse is not usually pillar. Mm-hmm. And so I'll let them imagine it and kind of get it out of their system. And then often from there, they can come up with the kind of pillar response they might use. Mm-hmm. Um I say the word might, though, because mm-hmm. here's the other thing I've come to feel just as strongly about. You know, if we're going to have conflict, it should be healthy. But I also feel, feel equally strongly that kids don't have to have every conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the name of empowerment, and especially for girls, there has been this sense that we have to teach young people to react to every slight, to, you know, challenge every affront, you know, to comment if their feelings are hurt. Um, and... It's really well-meaning, but it's not how any functioning adult operates, right? Functioning adults all day long are making decisions, and they may not be conscious about which injury to address, which one to let drop. They decide, you know what, I don't even care that much about this relationship. I'm not going to let the person know that I'm upset with them. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that person is bothering me, but I actually know that person well enough to know that if I... You know, if, if I make a pillar overture, I'm not going to get a pillar response. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's worth it. And so then we do the kind of nod and smile or we don't call as often or mm-hmm. whatever. And and that is a tactical decision. Right. And yeah. it's not being a doormat. It's making a strategic decision mm-hmm. to not engage in a conflict because there's no benefit to doing so. And so I have become as interested in giving permission to kids to step out of a conflict, Mm -hmm. to let some distance grow in a relationship that isn't working, as I have been in helping kids have healthy conflict if they're going to pursue a conflict. I remember in the book you said something about, well, it was when you were actually talking about relationships between girls and boys, but it still works here when you know the boy was making some really rude sexual-based comments or you know just really inappropriate. And you said, are you comfortable with letting that relationship go? I think oh. that's very powerful, you know, that that's an option. Like, that's actually an option. You don't actually have to make this work. And if it's not serving you or bringing you joy or mutually beneficial, that you can make the choice to put some distance there or let that relationship go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes what kids need help with then is being creative about how to do that in the context of like, maybe that person's going to be your lab partner Mm -hmm. tomorrow or whatever. So Rather than thinking like, oh, they have to resolve everything and we have to help them resolve it, I I think it's often quite a bit more useful to think with them about how much investment do they have in trying to sort this out and how much do they need our help sort of, you know, finding their way to kind of a a truce of sorts. Mm As I said, I could talk about this all day because there's so many more questions that I have, but I think we've decided that we'll we'll have you on again because I think there's more to discuss and pieces of the book that we haven't even gotten into. But before we go, I'd love to get your top tip. What is the top tip that you would say for parents and educators to be able to help girls deal with anxiety and stress? Honestly, I would say normalize it. Mm. The number one thing, I think, you know, when, when girls say to me, I have anxiety, I say, everybody has anxiety. Everybody has anxiety. What's making you anxious? And to treat it as having meaning, to treat it as being informative, to treat it as being very manageable, which it really is, 
Um, and same with stress. You know, when a girl says, you know, oh my God, school was so stressful today to say, wow, you know, what happened? A lot must have happened. Like you must have been really stretched, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, you're going to recover and you're going to be stronger and tougher for it. But yeah, stress, you know, happens when we are really pushing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what is your resource of the week? Where can people go to get more information about you, your book and all the great things you're doing? So my website is drlisademore.com. So D-R-L-I-S-A-D-A-M-O-U-R.com. And that has everything. That has my books, that has my columns that I've written, that has um, some videos, access to everything I pretty much my whole life. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, all right there. I've seen it. And of course, we're going to have links to all of your your website, your book, everything like that, so that people can if you're driving, don't worry, you don't have to write it down. We will uh, have everything ready for you on the Dr. Robin Silverman site as always with our show notes show notes so that you can just press on the links and, and find Lisa everywhere you go. And I just want to thank you so much for your insights and your strategies related to stress and anxiety with girls. I think the book is outstanding, extremely helpful, well-written, and it does provide a great uh, look into what girls are dealing with and also the ways that we can help girls cope with stress and anxiety better. So I just want to thank you for that. You are so welcome, and thank you for having me. Oh, well, it is my pleasure. And everybody, I've got my takeaways. And sweet friends, I know you have yours, so let's come up and discuss them. You can go to Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or we can discuss it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And I'm going to be going back and forth with Dr. Lisa Demore on all of this because she had so many great things to say, so many quotes. You know I create tons of memes, so you can share them all over, all over the place. And we can talk more about what's going on and go back and forth with Dr. Demore. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes or wherever you're streaming this and rate and review it so other people can learn about the outstanding solutions that Dr. Demore provided and use them in their own homes and their own schools. I truly pr- appreciate that. I want to thank you for coming here today and being part of this, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts up there. The show notes to this podcast and all other podcasts are up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. Perhaps you're going to use square breathing. You're going to use the glitter jar. You're going to take some of the things that were said today and relay them to your daughters, maybe even your sons. Of course, they're feeling stress as well. You can do this. Now, remember, It's not always easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. been listening to how to talk to kids about anything with dr robin silverman for more information on books articles speaking engagements or curriculum please visit drrobinsilverman.com